This is Company. I'm Sky Manson. Company is a podcast produced in rural Australia, bringing together ambitious women in the bush, the cities and all over the world. The legend of the iconic Country Women's Association is something that makes up the threads of the cloth that's worn and honoured and respected by many, if not all, women in rural Australia. As a rural journalist, I have to say that some of the stories told by CWA women reflect what I consider to be real acts of kindness and camaraderie in some of the most isolated communities in Australia. They are my favourites. And for my guest today, author Liz Harfel, there's a similar pull to explore and celebrate the mighty women of the CWA. This series of company is kindly sponsored by the CWA of New South Wales, and this year it's celebrating its 100-year anniversary. And to honour all that's been and gone with the organisation, Liz Harfel has been commissioned to write the book, Women Who Changed Country Australia. Liz spoke to me from her lovely old cottage in the Adelaide Hills, where we started our conversation reliving her childhood as the daughter of a dairy farmer in southeastern Australia. I had uh, a fantastic farm-based childhood, um, helping to bring in the cows and um, riding horses and (laughs) um, being involved in the harvest. Um, The farm is a bit of a living museum because my father was into steam traction engines and it had the last commercially operating steam traction engine in Australia outside a tourist venture. So um, I got to drive a steam traction engine around the paddocks and I was taught how to operate a binder which was traditionally used to harvest oats and my family still used those until not many years ago and how to use a pitchfork and build a traditional haystack and <laughs> so I grew up in a little bit of a time warp. Oh that's so interesting where, where did that um, drive from your parents or your father come from? Well, my father was always interested in um, steam engines and mechanical things. He left primary school when he was 12, like most um, men of his generation, and went to work with horse teams sowing crops. And um, he took him back himself back to do his studies and get an engine driver certificate. So he was qualified to drive steam engines, small locomotives up to the size of something like the Puffing Billy in Victoria. Mm-hmm. That's actually where he took my mum on their first date. (laughs) Um, So so, (laughs) 
really is. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as soon as he could, he, he bought a steam traction engine and then set about restoring it. And uh, his son, my brother Roger, has done the same. And we used to spend a lot of our holidays um, traipsing through forests in Victoria, looking for parts of steam engines and... Um, and now my now my nephews and my great nephews and uh, various other members of the family are all sort of um, still doing the same thing. So it's a long line of steam engine enthusiasts. Yeah. As a child and growing up, did you enjoy farm life and agriculture? I did. Yeah, I did. Um, I can remember resenting it highly when I had to go to school and <laughs> miss out on what was happening on the farm during the day. Um, and my parents were very good about encouraging us to be out and be actively involved. It didn't matter whether, you know, it wasn't just my brother. I have two sisters. We were all encouraged to be part of um, farm life. So I used to take harvest leave from high school, for example, and help harvest the oat crops. And we did our turns in the dairy, um, which isn't always a lot of fun. Um, in the winter months down there, Mount Gammy is a very cold and wet place. And uh, sometimes the mud was knee deep, <laughs> bringing the cattle in, but um, bringing the cows in. But we, um, yeah, I, I loved farm life. And what about your mum? What were her interests? My mum was a city girl. I actually ended up writing a book around the theme of city women who ended up on farms, but, you know, in strong part because of my mum's experience. Mum and dad met during the war when dad was um, in Melbourne training with the Air Force, and he brought her back to a farmhouse with no internal plumbing or electricity <laughs> And an old wood stove, which was pretty typical um, experience for thousands of, of women after the war. Mm. And um, and mum mum had been an exceptional bookkeeper. She'd worked for a big um, clothing store business in Melbourne during the war, and she's all she was always very good with numbers. My eldest sister ended up becoming a chartered accountant and a financial rural financial counsellor. Um, so mum was responsible for that side of the farm business, but she was also an excellent cook and very good seamstress. Um, her great-grandfather was a tailor. Um, she used to make amazing outfits for my sister, copying Jackie Kennedy's latest outfits and things like that. Um, uh, so, yeah, she, she threw herself wholeheartedly into becoming part of the farming district, although I have no doubt at all it was quite a shock for her. And so for you, when did writing come into and journalism come into your life? So I made up my mind what I wanted to do when I was about nine years old. <laughs> My family were all great readers, so I was you know, encouraged to read books from a very young age. I loved writing, and when I was about eight or nine, I met a woman called Kathleen Birmingham, who during the, I think it was even before the 1920s, sort of after the war, 1920s, worked as a freelance journalist in Sydney. And she uh, lived in a little community about... 100 kilometres from where I grew up and was the local historian and wrote a book about it. And we ended up buying an old cottage in that town. It's a place called Robe on the coast, uh, quite a well-known little seaside mm -hmm. place with a great history. And um, Kathleen was also the local real estate agent. <laughs> 
And we went down there for some event that was connected with um, the Chinese landings at Rai. Rai was famous as an entry point for the Chinese during the gold rush of, in Victoria in the 1850s. And my great-grandfather was a carrier in the area and he took a group of Chinese from Robe over to the gold fields. Um, and so, you know, the family had always been interested in this story and we went down to Robe and met Kathleen who sold my dad this rundown old cottage and convinced me to be a journalist when I was only eight or nine. <laughs> How did she um, convince you? Well, she asked me one day what I'd like to do, and I explained that I liked reading books and writing, and she said, well, you should be a journalist then, and that was it, really. I had no <laughs> plan B after that. I really didn't. And I, um, you know, thanks to her, I had my first story published in a little collection that was put together as a tribute to her when she died, and I was only about 12 when that happened. Mm. My first gig as a journalist was writing about the launch of that book uh, for the for the paper where I grew up, which uh, the Border Watch in Mount Gambier. Mm. Um, she had such an enormous influence on me, not just wanting to make me a writer, but also a love of history and of... Um, the importance of protecting and conserving history and gathering stories that might be lost. Um, so she, I mean, she was this indomitable little figure with white hair back, tied back in a bun. She wore a little camp, high collared white shirts with a little cameo brooch and a shoestring um, tie and long black skirts. She was a very Victorian era styled woman and very strong personality and she literally stood in front of bulldozers to protect the history of robe in the 60s at a time when development was seeing a lot of um, transformation of of country towns and streetscapes um, so uh, you know she was inspiring in so many ways <laughs> and she left quite a quite a, a mark on me and um to kind of leap ahead a little bit, um, I worked as a journalist for quite a few years and then I got into public relations in a, in a firm that specialised in agriculture. So I was, I've always kind of stayed close to those sort of country roots. I decided to leave that job because I wanted to write books and it was a very demanding career that took up, you know, 60 hours a week. And in the week that I... Um, left my work I went down to Robe for a bit of a break and I was walking down the street and um, and what the local ABC was broadcasting from the street and I knew the presenter and he called me over and said what are you up to and and I explained and listening in was the was the owner of the local bookshop who'd just been approached by a publisher for someone to pick up where Kathleen had left off oh, and write oh a book God. about Robe and I still actually get goosebumps oh, <laughs> thinking about goosebumps. that. Yeah. Um, it was like my whole life and had gone a complete circle. And uh, I, serendipity is my favourite word. There's been so many moments in my life where my path has changed by the happenstance of being in the right place at the right time or meeting someone. But um, that gave me... Um, an introduction to Wakefield Press, you know, a very good publishing house, independent publishing house in South Australia. 
And um, the road book took quite a while to happen. But in the meantime, I came up with the idea for what I thought was a very simple little book about country shows and show cooks and their recipes. And for me, it was an excuse of writing about the history of country shows, which are such a huge part of who we are and in this country. I mean, there's still, I think it's close to 600 country shows around Australia. Um, and because I had discussions with Wakefield about the road book, I could pick up the phone to them. And I went in and I said, I've had this idea. And I came out pretty much with a book deal. Mm. <laughs> I hadn't written a word. They, they loved the idea um, and uh, gave me nine months to write the book. And I, I appreciate, you know, when I have this conversation with other authors, this is the sort of thing that hardly ever happens. Mm. I didn't have to write a manuscript and then send it to 20 publishers and, you know, really struggle to get... Um, to get a foot in the door I you know I had my first book idea accepted and all I'd done was write a one-page outline and how did that impact how you wrote the freedom that you sort of didn't have to struggle to get your idea across the line so there's pros and cons to this situation Sky so um you know, it's very exciting to know that you're writing with purpose and it's not going to be a wasted effort because what you're working on is going to see the light of day. So that's, that is fabulous. However, writing in those circumstances, you are writing to a deadline. You don't have the luxury of just working on it until it's finished. You have to deliver it by a specific date. And in this case, the date was only nine months away because the publisher went to the, local, to the Royal Show Society in Adelaide and told them, you know, about the idea. And they said, well, we're about to build a new pavilion and move the cooking section up to the front of the whole showgrounds. And we'd, you know, can the book be ready to be launched then? More serendipity. <laughs> exactly. So, um, and, you know, I'd never written a book before and I thought it would be quite straightforward what I had in mind. You know, it, um, when I worked as a journalist at the Border Watch, I might have to write a dozen stories a day. And, you know, working on a country newspaper, you, you, you work really hard. It's a great training ground because just about everything you do after that is quite, <laughs> it seems to be quite easy. So I very foolishly thought, nine months, yeah, piece of cake, I could do this. Um, but it was, uh, I, re I realise now looking back, it's probably better I didn't know. <laughs> how complicated it was going to be um, because when I started working on the book what I wanted to try and do was get a first prize winning recipe off each of the show cooks I profiled and I discovered that most of these recipes weren't written down or not written down in any way that anyone else could follow um, and so I, I not only had to learn the art of recipe editing but of recipe writing and also how to capture all the knowledge these fantastic cooks have handed down through generations in the kitchen. So that meant spending time watching what they were doing um, because if you ask them to just write it down themselves and send it to you, they missed whole things because they, you know, they made these, these recipes on automatic pilot. They'd been making them for years. Um, I've discovered that, you know, when people say that, oh, you know, the neighbor's trying to keep a secret ingredient from me there's something missing from this recipe that's probably not the case it's just that because they 
they do these things, you know, they do it so intrinsically, it's so intrinsically woven into their kitchen DNA that they don't um, always realise the steps and what they're doing. It's just something they do automatically. So the only way to really get it right is to watch them and ask them Such what they're doing. to hear because <laughs> it, is, it is like almost a wives' tale that, oh, you know, I'm sure they leave something out. It's just it is. a little bit to themselves. You hear it all the time, and I'll swear to you that it's not deliberate. Um, that um, and then and then you have situations like I cannot tell you the number of times I walked into a kitchen, and they would be measuring out the flour or sugar, and they'd lift the tin down off the shelf and bring out an old teacup, which was yeah. their measurement. Now it's nobody's standard measurement; it was their measurement, so they knew what one cup was. But when you were writing a recipe for somebody else to use, you've actually got to make it a standard measurement that means something um, that other people can replicate. So I soon learned I had to travel with metric measuring cups and spoons. Um, and, and spoons were absolutely essential because um, Australia has a unique uh, sized tablespoon. Our tablespoon is four teaspoons and in the rest of the world, mostly it's three. Some cooks don't know it, but they're using Tupperware tablespoons and Tupperware is American, so they're only three. <laughs> and this might sound like it doesn't matter, but if you're making a sponge roll or a sponge in which the dry ingredients are measured in teaspoons and tablespoons, the quantities are that small. It can have a huge difference on the success of the recipe. So these these are all of the things that I had to get my head around and... Um, and, and I've now done three books uh, that are about capturing the recipes of home cooks and their skills because it's, um, it's just become something that's fascinated me and uh, this incredible knowledge that home cooks have um, and the way they use those recipes and whether it's competing in a show or donating it to a community cookbook to help raise money for a good cause. Um, or bring you know taking a plate along to their local hall for a fundraising event um, I, and yeah it's just be, it's become something that is, I've, I've really sort of um, become fascinated by the yes show was just on on the weekend and yeah we've just had exactly the same experience um, with little posies of flowers and the vegetable animals and winning prizes and um, it's such a gift for children to take part in it, but there, yeah, it's um, th there's not a lot, but it is interesting that although shows have changed, these elements of shows perhaps haven't. the 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 produce and the uh, and the flowers and the art um, and the preserves and the and the cooking sections still remain very strong. They do. And um, I think there's a whole new generation of um, people who who are trying to reconnect with traditional skills and mm. crafts and home, you know, that sort of traditional homemaking skills. And um, this gives them, you know, an outlet for that. And it's some of the older show cooks that I spoke to and show cooks can come from all walks of life. You know, for example, in Brisbane, the top show cooks were mostly men from trades background where they learnt the art of precision. So fitters and turners and and plumbers and people like that. Um, so I'm no so, good at cooking. 
<laughs> so they, you know, they really do, do come from a really diverse um, background. But in, you know, for women of my mum's era, I had a couple of show cooks from that say to me that it was the one time of the year when the things that they did every day to look after their families was put on a bit of a pedestal and somebody noticed mm. and I think that's incredibly powerful mm. so um, to celebrate you know a lot of those things like preserving was an, was an essential it wasn't a nice thing to do to fill in some spare time it was an essential aspect of running a household um, and feeding your family and to kind of take those skills which I'm sure after you've slogged for days peeling fruit and chopping onions and you know boiling and you know things and that it's hard work and it's often done in the heat of summer (laughs) yes that you've also grown yourself in exactly um you know so to actually have a moment when somebody notices how good you are at that that's that's pretty special are you a cook yourself, Liz? I am. I am. I'm a much better cook, having uh, having done two books with show cooks, including um, Yes, by the way, uh, was featured in um, in the Australian Blue Ribbon Cookbook. Um, but yeah, the, I my mum was a great cook, and she did loved having the kids in the kitchen. Um, so some some people don't, but we were brought up sort of learning to cook and in the harvest we had huge teams of people helping bring in the oat crop so you know we'd made dozens of scones every day mum would always give them morning and afternoon tea um, and so we had to help with that um, and she made jam and chutney and she was um, the pavlova queen of the district so <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all of those things and then I've you know then I've spent you know the last uh, 10 12 years associating with people who win prizes in shows and learning from them both the cooks and the judges so I'm not I'm not saying I'm a you know top prize winning cook but I love to cook and I've learned a lot of little tips and tricks that have make it made it easier I I I bake maybe once a week as long as I can share it with neighbours and friends I do a lot of preserving um I have fruit trees in my garden and I have a veggie patch so I I make um you know jams and uh chutneys and relishes and I preserve I I use a cola and preserve fruit Um, and um, and then I love to cook Middle Eastern food, which is completely different again. So, you know, just experimenting with herbs and spices and things like that. What's your piece de resistance? Oh, that's a good question because, you know. Um, there are many. <laughs> there, well, if I have to take a plate to an event, I usually take sausage rolls. Um, one of one of the show cooks I encountered uh, shared this amazing sausage roll recipe and um, which I is it just beats anything you can buy from a bakery and so I started making them to take and now I can't go without them <laughs> because people ask where are the sausage rolls <laughs> what's in there what's in there um, so the secret actually is a lot of uh, fresh breadcrumbs which actually make the filling light and soak up the juices and the fat from the meat so the pastry stays 
crisp. So that's the main that's the main trick. But like pepper and parsley and onion in with the sausage mince is also pretty important and a good quality uh, puff pastry. I, mm. uh, yeah, you can't beat a sausage roll. Uh, yeah, I think I think sausage rolls and vanilla slices. They're Ooh. my benchmarks to judge. Ooh, yeah country bakeries when i'm traveling what's on the boil <laughs> yes i know well vanilla slices definitely are such a yardstick aren't they they, they are um and what's on the on the boil for for you now jam and preserve wise ah um well i've just starting to harvest my own apples i've got uh three apple trees in the garden one of them is a heritage variety that i haven't been able to identify i've i've only lived where i've lived for four years so there's some mysteries in the garden um but they are fantastic um for cooking um and so what i try and do is um preserve them in uh, using the vicola so that I've got access to them uh, year round and I have a great and very prolific little pink lady apple tree uh, which unfortunately I have I have Labradors who like apples (laughs) (laughs) and and, uh, we're having a bit of a battle at the moment about who's going to get the most of them the dogs or me but For 100 years, the Country Women's Association of New South Wales has been bettering the services, facilities and communities of this state. There are many exciting events and activities planned for the organisation's 100th birthday this year, the biggest of which will be the annual state conference for members at Royal Randwick in Sydney on the 2nd to the 5th of May. As well, is the release of Liz Harfel's book, Women Who Changed Country Australia, which will happen at a date later in the year that's yet to be confirmed. Find out more information about the annual conference and when Liz's book will be released by following the CWA of New South Wales's Facebook page. Another much-loved resource is the CWA Journal, which is sent to all current members. To become a member, like I have, fill out the application online at cwaofnewsouthwales.org.au. And I suppose you haven't had a, a lot of time recently because you're currently working on uh, a book for the CWA of New South Wales to help celebrate its 100 year anniversary. I'd love to know how this book came about initially. My last book was about the tradition of community cookbooks and it has a whole section on the CWA um, because they are a very prolific producer of cookbooks that share home cooks recipes to raise money for good causes. Um, which community cookbooks have been doing in Australia for over 100 years. And there's thousands of examples. I'm sure everybody's got at least one or two tucked away on their bookshelf somewhere. And um, so when I was researching that, I spent a bit of time in the head office uh, for the CWA in Sydney um, and looked at their cookbooks and ended up writing about the Coronation Cookbook which um, was the first serious cookbook the CWA in New South Wales put out in 1937 to mark the coronation of the king, the Queen's father, the current Queen's father. And um, 
Is it? What's the cover of that book? Is it the strange? original cover had tiny little gold crowns all over it on a pale blue background um, and then the cover changed quite a bit um, because the book was still being published the last edition was 2006 mm -hmm. so it was around for decades it sold tens of thousands maybe even hundreds of thousands of copies and um, the cover changed over the years um, so depending on what edition you have in your collection um, it could I you know it could look quite different to the original one which was quite a small book um, but with this this beautiful cover um, and so I I was really keen to find out about the women behind the cookbooks who it was that put them together and 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 the and the good those books had done um, since they were um, published. And um, when I'd finished the book, I actually visited uh, a few CWA branches in New South Wales to do author events and share and share the stories. Um, and I went to Bega one day, and it happened to be not long after Stephanie Stanhope was elected state president, and they were starting to think about. The centenary celebrations and I I talked about um, how hard it had been to find out um, information about um, the coronation cookbook because it was a you know pretty much untold story for the CWA and how I thought that that was you know it was a shame um, it hadn't really been mentioned in previous history books and the CWA New South Wales has had several history books over the years um, and uh, and Steph must have thought about this because a few months later I got a phone call <laughs> saying would you be interested in writing our centenary history um, so it kind of you know it's another case of serendipity being in the in the right place at the right time so what's the book titled and what is it about so it's titled the women who changed country Australia um, and essentially, uh, it focuses, it looks at the whole 100 year history of the CWA in, in New South Wales, but the CWA started in Sydney. So the first sections of the book are the foundation story for, for everywhere, for every CWA. Um, I'm not an academic. For me, I've always been interested in people and particularly people who, whose stories might otherwise not be told. Um, and um, mostly in the past, that's been women. You know, um, they're the ones who are missing out of the records in so many communities um, and whose stories have not necessarily been well told um, in past years, although I think that's changing now. So I wanted to look at the organisation through the women themselves. I, I sort of said it early on, this is not going to be an official sort of corporate style history. I want it to be about, about the women and what motivated them to become involved and to create the CWA, um, which involved a massive amount of research about the context of what, what women's lives were like in country Australia. Um, when the CWA was formed and then over the decades as the CWA and what it focused on changed, why was that happening? What was going on around them? Um, so uh, it was um, the amount of research that had to be done was, was massive. It's probably the most challenging book I've ever done in that respect. 
all during COVID. Yes, that's right. How did you access your research material? Was it through publications or interview? Right. So it was a combination of both and it depended a little bit on the era that I was looking at. The CWA has fantastic archives in Sydney. They've been very diligent over the years of collating documents that capture key moments in the organisation's history. So I had a lot of primary resources to deal with. The trouble is I live in South Australia and the archive is in Sydney and normally that wouldn't be such an issue, but for an awful lot of the last couple of years as a South Australian, I haven't been allowed to travel to New Mm. South Wales or if I have, I've had to spend time in quarantine when I come back because we've had very tight quarantine rules here. So I've been in and out of home quarantine quite a bit um, during the research process. And then, you know, when I got into the period where there were people alive who remembered the moments, um, I would interview. What was it like having access to the archive? I imagine like it just would have been so fascinating. I have to say I love historical research. When I was a cadet journalist, our paper had a column which had 50 years ago, 100 years ago, the paper had been established in the 1860s by a woman, which was very unusual. Um, and uh, I, they'd send me into the what was a, a, a huge vault, essentially, with the old papers, and I'd get lost for hours. They'd have to come and get me out. <laughs> So I love historical research and um, I love the detective work um, of it too. That's all, that was something I always loved as a journalist um, of, you know, the hunt for information because, you know, I started an era when there was no internet. You had to think um, creatively about where you were going to find out what you needed to know. Um, and when I started work uh on this book so many of the state presidents for example were only known by their husband's initials because that was the style um in fact my my mum always signed herself you know by her um my father's initials that's what women did until well and and as a cadet on a country newspaper in the 70s I came across a lot of women who insisted on their name being given that way so the first detective work was quite often spending time trying to work out what their name was what what was that woman's first name and so uh, yeah and then there were you know just to be able to see documents in in the original hand of the founding president, Grace Munro, and the woman who really started the whole thing in many ways, Florence Gordon, who was who was the catalyst for, for the CWA being formed. That's quite something when you are looking at documents like that. I bet. Handwriting is just something else. It's, um, it's so intimate. It is. Yes, it is. So lead me through some of the women who did change country Australia via the CWA. Who are the standout women that you write about in this book? Well, there's there's three who really played a part in creating what we know as the CWA today. And in the past, a lot of the limelight has gone to Grace Munro, who came from the Warriolda district. She was from a very well-known pastoral family and she married into one um, and lived on Kira Station just out of Bingra. And she was about 40 at the time the CWA was um, was formed in her early 40s. And um, so Grace was the founding president 
but she, she was invited to become involved um, by a woman called Florence Gordon. And Florence, I've discovered, which was very exciting research, I managed to track down descendants of the family. Mm -hmm. Florence's father owned Gordon's Gin. So she came from the Gordon's distillery family in Britain. And he uh, made a very poor deal and sold the company and more or less lost a lot of money. And his adult children were told, basically, they'd have to make their own way in the world. So Florence ended up coming to Australia. She already had a brother in Tasmania. And this is where, you know, it resonated with me because she found work as a journalist. And it was one of the few avenues open for a woman in the early 1900s to earn money. Um, and if you had a good education and can write, it was quite a, it was a, it was an obvious choice. And she ended up being employed on a news, the newspaper at Tamworth and had a, a regular column. And unlike most women who tended to be given the job of writing about society, you know, social events and women's affairs, she, she got to write about uh, politics and visiting politicians and sort of current affairs of the day. And in um, in the early, you know, in 1922, she got a job with the Stock and Station Journal, which was one of the first farming newspapers in Australia. And she was given a regular column. So she, as far as I can work out, she'd be, she would have been one of the first regular women columnists in a farming newspaper in Australia. And she wrote about the plight of country women and the standard of their living conditions and suggested that a union of help be formed for country women so they could you know, come together and, and use their combined power to at least negotiate better prices and better services. And um, this, this concept was published in the paper and it drew out of the woodwork a guy called Dr. Richard Arthur, a politician who had a couple of years before proposed a Bush Women's Conference, but the idea went nowhere. He was very well aware that women and families in rural Australia were living in often appalling conditions with no services and very hard lives um, and wanted to do something about it. So he proposed this conference um, and uh, it, it, the idea just wasn't picked up until Florence came along and wrote her column. And he went to see her and said, you know, I've, I've had this idea, you know, could we make this happen? And Florence and her and the newspaper thought, agreed. And so they set to organising this conference, which was held in Sydney in April 1922. And um, it was pretty much uh, organised um, and they were becoming a bit concerned no one would show up. And so I, I think at this point, Grace uh, wrote to the paper and said, you know, I'm interested in this Bushwoman's conference and this is a really important issue um, and she and Florence met and Florence invited her to become the chair of the organising committee which added it considerable um, credibility gravitas to the whole concept because Grace's family were very high profile they had great connections with other pastoral families with the social set in Sydney with politicians and having her on board really sort of sent a strong message 
that this is going to be an important event and you should get involved. Um, and then one of the speakers at the conference was a woman called Florence Laver, who had started up pretty much what we would think of as a CWA in Victoria in 1918. And within a couple of years, it had 100 branches. It was formed under the Victorian Farmers Union, uh, which was actually a, turned into the National Party in Victoria. Um, but it had exactly the same agenda that the CWA ended up having. And I think Florence Labor, who was elected the first, one of the first vice presidents to grace, had a strong influence on where, on the direction the CWA would take. So for example, setting up restrooms and club rooms where women could come together and also, you know, where they had access to um, just a simple thing like a public toilet, which was an incredibly rare outside of Sydney and quite rare even in Sydney, that it made it very difficult for women to come to town for the day and do their shopping. They had nowhere to to go so unless they were well enough off to hire a room at the local hotel um so just that simple thing <laughs> that we now take for granted <laughs> um was was important yeah so florence had already been doing that in victoria she was also very focused on maternity and baby health and on improving country schools and these all became a strong agenda items of the CWA, which was formed on the third day of the conference. Um, the women who'd come along agreed that they needed an organisation to advocate for their cause. And so they created this association on the 20th of April. And um, within 24 hours, they, Grace led her first delegation to see a government minister. They wasted absolutely no time getting stuck in um when you when you sit and think about it you know for for women to do that then mm. to be that power empowered and determined is really something do you know what it was about um well they went to they actually their top priority was the uh, minister for health because they were deeply concerned about maternity care and baby health and again it's not until you do the research about what was going on that you realise why. And I discovered that during the First World War, as many infants died in Australia as men died at the front, close to 60,000. In a country with a fairly small population, close to 60,000 infants died in the same years of the First World War when about 60,000 Australians died fighting. Mm. Isn't that just, so just learning that statistic alone made me realise why these women were so determined to mm. do something about that. And, um, and then the other figure is that in the period of about 30 years up until the early 1920s, just in New South Wales, 9,000 women died giving birth. So Grace was well aware of these issues in particular because she'd lost her youngest child, Jack, who died when he was less than a year old. And most of these infant deaths were preventable. They were from issues that better hygiene and nutrition and, um, you know, education for the mothers and better standard of uh, living in the home 
would have prevented um, or maternity services for them giving birth. So, um, you know, as soon as I saw the context in which these women were operating, it became really clear to me. Um, so they went to they went to the Minister for Health to demand better maternity services in the bush. There was already a bush nursing um, service in really isolated communities. There were quite a few bush nurses operating in New South Wales, but there were practically no uh, maternity wards or maternity beds available at all. Um, and and in fact, the CWA struggled against government bureaucracy for years um, be, to get permission to uh, raise money and fund these kind of facilities to the point where, again, this is something became a hallmark of the CWA when they couldn't persuade the politicians to change policy or get behind them, they did it themselves. So they built bush hospitals, they built cottage hospitals and engaged maternity nurses and did it themselves. I'm going to leave my conversation with author Liz Harfield there for this week. There is so much more to come from Liz in next week's edition of Company. Isn't she just a fountain of knowledge? And I've got to say, I'm with Liz. I do love a little bit of history, especially family and local history. Thank you so much to the Country Women's Association of New South Wales for sponsoring this series of Company. And I'll be back with you next week with more from Liz Harfel. To check out Liz's reading list, she is an admitted avid reader. Please subscribe to my newsletter at mansonandcompany.com.